The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Yes, it does. Live from the NASDAQ market side, overlooking what else? New York's Times Square. This is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan. Welcome, everybody. Your traders on the desk tonight are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, the juggernaut rally just steamrolls on. More new highs for stocks. The Dow, a new record. But if stocks come too far, too fast. We've asked it before, but tonight, we've got one stat that'll make you go, hmm, plus... Mm. Facebook hits a major milestone, and Goldman Sachs top tech analyst Heather Bellini is here to break down what it says about the direction of the company, what it is coming up. And check out tonight's mystery chart. Pay attention, okay, everybody. Okay, okay. Tim, yep, I'm in, this I'm in. stock is up more than 10% in two days. We're going to dish up the goss on what has got this stock. That must be a so clue. Red hot. A clue. Maybe. All right, all that ahead, but we begin. With three big movers this afternoon, our team, of course, is here to break it down for you. Josh Lipton, standing by in Cisco earnings. That stock down nearly 3%. Seema Modi, digging in on TripAdvisor. But we've got to kick it off with news that broke in the last hour on MGM. Contessa Brewer back at CNBC HQ with some numbers and... A big executive departure, Contessa. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Big news from MGM Resorts. Chairman and CEO Jim Murren is leaving. He's been at the helm of this organization since 2012. In fact, was mentored by founder Kurt Kerkorian and will remain in this post, I'm told, until a successor is found. This comes at a time fraught with uncertainty for the company. Its casinos are closed in Macau because of coronavirus. Far East visitors aren't playing Baccarat in Las Vegas the way they used to. That led last quarter to an 18% drop in table games. Those headwinds have caused the company to withdraw its full-year guidance. It's expending massive energy, effort, and dollars to secure a gaming license in Japan for an integrated resort. Its new casino in Springfield, Massachusetts is struggling. And Refinitiv and S&P were out with a note questioning MGM's credit and its ability to sustain long-term coronavirus disruption without raising its risk of default. And then you have activist investors like Keith Meister, who was named to the board last year, really agitating for change here. $300 million in big cost-cutting initiatives at MGM Resort. They're selling premier properties like the Bellagio and MGM Grand on the Strip. This is a company, Brian, in the midst of upheaval. The call has just started. I'm going to jump on. I'll bring you back any headlines that I find. Yeah, please do. Contessa, thank you very much. All right, let's talk about this, guys. Not a segment we talk about too much, but Tim... Kind of an odd departure to sense that MGM, yeah, the stock up 18% over six months, which is good, not as good as the market. It's outperformed Las Vegas Sands. Not like this company's been tanking. No, and as it should. It's certainly with the focus that's been on Macau. Remember, MGM reminding audience, it, they're about 30% of the revenues are coming from China, whereas, you know, win is 75%. So very different profile on risk. Um, as was just talked about, the fact that MGM has been doing everything they can to improve their balance sheet makes this stock a lot more defensive. So again, the sale uh, of the grand, they sold their property, I think, at, yeah, 15, point, uh, 15 and three quarters times multiple uh, uh, on EBITDA, which is, which is very attractive. And I 
think, something that gets them down to that one times leverage that they were trying to do. So um, I think casinos that are thrown around here, a lot of these stocks were breaking out before we got into coronavirus. And again, those that actually are exposed, uh, I like casinos. Yeah, I should have said this, Karen. Wynn Resorts up eight and a half percent in a year. MGM's up twice that. I mean, it's again, it's it's not like this has been some horrible underperformer. No, well, there's one thing in the release today that was really interesting, the tender offer that, that MGM announced. So they're doing $1.25 billion in a tender off, a Dutch tender. So you can somewhere between 29 and 34. So they're basically giving you somewhat of a floor for at least some portion of the con- company, even while they're saying we have no idea what the outlook is based on coronavirus. That's sort of interesting to me that they're willing to do that at a time of such uncertainty. It sort of goes to your point of, I mean, they must also think the stock's undervalued if they're willing to step up in that big way right now. It's interesting. A couple Fridays ago, Scott hosted the show, and we were t- it was probably not the peak necessarily of coronavirus, but obviously we were talking about it. And Las Vegas Sands was sort of vacillating around the 65 level, and we had talked about that being your level for an entry point, being that that was a previous high back over the summer. And Scott questioned us correctly, why would you step in here? And to Tim's point, because a lot of these names have gotten bludgeoned on the back of it. I mean, LVS was absolutely breaking out to the upside prior to this, and we talked about that 65 level. Now here at 71, I think it does take out that recent high of 75, and it's cheaper than MGM at 19 times, whereas MGM is probably a premium in the space, close to 22 and a half. So I'm not saying ditch MGM here, but I am saying stay long LVS. Well, the idea being is that eventually, hopefully sooner than later, coronavirus will be a footnote in history. Let's hope sooner than later. And the one thing we've learned about the consumer, whether it's the American consumer or somebody in Macau or wherever else there's a casino, if they want to go, they're going to go. And they're going to come back quickly. And the consumer's healthy. And the consumer, at least, we can talk all we want about household debt and certainly some of the sensitivities there are to interest rates. But, but if you think about where casinos were after the financial crisis in 2008 into nine, the consumer was in a totally different place. They hadn't, re- they hadn't repaired the balance sheet. And, and that was not a place to come in and buy casinos. Again, so as you pointed out, this is, this is a hiatus. This is certainly going to be an awful February. Uh, gross gaming revenues in January were down 11.3%. They're going to be significantly worse in February for those exposed to Macau. But this is not something that doesn't correct itself, I think, as you get through into the second quarter, assuming we get through this. And I know that's, that it may be insensitive to the, to, the, to the health issues that are out there, but we've seen this before in terms of Asian assets coming through the, the, uh, the SARS virus. Yeah, because and I guess I would assume, Tim, you would say, and I don't want to throw anything on our coverage coming up in a couple weeks when the next earnings season is out, but you've got to just write off the first quarter, right? I mean, the first quarter you For basically sure. ignore. Right. All right, by the way, MGM... After hours low is down about 4.5% right now. So the selling continues in that stock. I know we're going to get more on that, probably with Contessa in a bit. But let's turn right now to Cisco Systems. That stock down after reporting earnings as well. Let's get the numbers and the reason why the stock is off nearly 3% with Josh Lipton. Josh. So, uh, Brian, you know, I checked in with Alex Henderson over at Needham. He covers the name. I just want to get his take on the print. Um, his point was actually, given the weak conditions in Europe, uh, the exposure to APAC, frankly, he told me he, he thought it was going to potentially be a lot worse. Um, in his opinion, the guidance here it was fine. The security segment looked good. Did call out Q2 product orders. That could explain some of the weakness we're seeing here uh, in the after hours. A decent print is how he would put it. CEO Chuck Robbins is on the call right now. He's talking 
talking to analysts. Um, he did call out these big uh, secular growth drivers that he thinks are going to continue to benefit Cisco in the cores ahead. So by that, he means 5G. Uh, he means the move to the cloud. He did say, though, talking about his customers, the trends and themes he's seeing in the quarter, that we are seeing, he said, some pausing from customers. Uh, they are still planning on moving forward, he's telling analysts, but they are just a bit more cautious right now, given the macro environment. He also talked about the coronavirus. We'll see how that plays out. Brian, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Josh. Last night on the program, Dan, you said that Cisco Systems, while the company itself may not be that big of a deal macro, that you were really interested in these numbers. They were important because it was the first major tech company that had a little bit of exposure yeah. to Corona. Yeah, that quarter ended at the end of January. I mean, to your point, you know, you just said, is Q1 a, a, a sort of a mulligan for a lot of companies reporting? And so, you know, why was this important? We know the dollar strengthened over the last few months. We know that um, Cisco is a company that has 40% of their sales outside of the U.S., so they're exposed to a lot of places um, where that dollar can kind of hurt them. The trade tariffs, obviously, with China, um, and then this coronavirus. So, you know, I mean, listen, I think last quarter, CEO Chuck Robbins said that it's a very uncertain time. I think he's kind of continued that thought process, but it doesn't seem worse than it was three months ago in November. So the stock just ran from 46 to 50 today. Um, it's giving some of that back. The options uh, market was implying about a 5% move in either direction. These are important to remember. In August when they reported, in November when they reported, they guided down. So here they are guiding for this current quarter, kind of in line, but it's important to remember that they're expecting sales to be down 3.5% at the midpoint or so, or 2.5% or so. Um, that's just not great, and that's not in this market. You're you're not going to get rewarded for that. This is a stock trading 15 times, well below the S&P at 19 times, well below a lot of its mega cap tech peers. I just don't see why you step in and buy this thing here, given the uncertainty. Yeah, and it Wait. seems like, oh, I'm sorry, Tim, okay. quick. It seems like it's cheap at 15 times, but you have really no EPS growth. And the guide was, wasn't great. I mean, the quarter was fine. The guide wasn't great. And to Dan's point, we went from basically 43 and a half, 44 mid-December to current levels. This is where, by the way, we topped out at back in October, if you go back and look. So I think this probably retest, given a benign tape, which clearly we haven't seen. Benign tape, this retest the December lows, in my opinion. So, I, I, look, I've been pretty constructive on Cisco. Also, I think the valuation is interesting, and I, I can't change that today. I, I, it, you know, I was reading a Cowan report where they, they highlighted a, an interview with Chuck Robbins from Davos, where he basically said, we're not seeing any change in end demand. In other words, it's not getting a whole lot better. I think the expectations were out there, that it, this wasn't really extraordinary. And back to our conversation on, obviously, uh, the look into the snapshot of, of where enterprise is right now. Um, it's not getting a whole lot better. I mean, their, their service provider... Uh, uh, kind of routing business is something that you want to see uh, pick up, but it was not something that was a big stalwart. I still think that Cisco's exposure to software and services, especially around security, are why you get margin improvement in this company, and I think it is attractive. You know what's amazing, too, is with the growth of traffic on the Internet. We had Alakamai, the CEO on CNBC earlier today. They benefit from video compression, obviously. The more videos you watch, your kids watch, the better it is. Network traffic is only growing, but when you look at any of the names in this space, Juniper, Sienna, anybody that's sort of a, none of them are doing well, Tim. It's not like this whole, the internet's booming, but the companies that make the guts, the skeleton. Yeah, so again, I think the, the, there's different places where enterprise spending has actually uh, you know, been fine and you haven't seen a hiccup. I think you have seen it in, in hardware. And I think we're certain uh, there was also some seasonality in terms of where inventories were. So um, it's been a tough place to invest. And I think those names you just mentioned were the ones that people sold first on, on trade war. And then, you know, the coronavirus is a dynamic that obviously is hurting them more. Um, I think it was more of a trade war issue for those names. Yeah, Cisco Systems. So nobody around the table is... 
I am. Well, I'm con- I'm, yeah. You're a bias. But, the, but, there's not really, but here's, here's the thing, and I'll just take the other side of it real quick. There's just no reason to buy it right now. I mean, unless you can kind of put your finger on a calendar and tell you that this corona thing's going to be out of the way, that global growth is going to reaccelerate sometime soon. Yes, there might be a backlog for orders for these guys. I think incrementally, I think Robin sounds a bit more constructive. But to your point about hardware was down in the quarter, high single digits percent year over year. Software, you know, uh, security was up high single digits, but it's right. a much smaller business. So, yep. yeah, you know, you may get that margin fixed, but this is a this is a revenues are not growing at this company, and I don't know why you reward this for much more than it's trading at 15 times. Uh, I don't think you have to reward it. I think I can own Cisco at a time when mega cap tech stacks are, are, are moving and seeing liquidity surge. And that's not a reason to buy any company, um, except for the fact that I think the valuation here is very defendable. It, it's, it's tough to bang the table on a company whose top line is going gonna, is gonna to decline 4% this year. The market is waiting to see this business be transformed. But, but right now, you're not overpaying for it. Uh, and buying this on weakness, when again, if you're buying the weakness, if the weakness is that this guidance was overly conservative, right. I, I'm I'm not sure what so, you've been looking at. So I mean, the guidance wasn't, you know, wasn't going to be better. Sorry to interrupt, but Come you, on, you just used the term overpaying. So here's what's going to happen with Cisco in the next year. They're going to have to overpay for some security assets. So they have $28 billion in cash, $20 billion in debt. This company has bought, made a lot of significant mm-hmm. acquisitions over the years, and that's what they're going to have to do. If they're going to get that security revenue component growing you know, faster than the decline in the hardware, they're going to have to make more acquisitions. Where valuations are right now, is it a great time to be buying high growth? businesses i just don't know you know and so they're going to be a buyer is what i'm saying i don't i don't think cisco has to chase anything here i mean i it's it's still a company that you say with the cash on the balance sheet and the positioning of the business um the fact that security security is trading at at, at very different multiples on the software side you're right uh, but i don't think they you're you're assuming that they have to go in and make a bad acquisition well my point is how long can you underperform the broad market in the biggest bull market that's ever existed we all think chuck robbins is an amazing ceo and he I mean, IBM's trying to do the same thing. So I'm not saying we're all saying the same thing. This company has underperformed. I don't think going out and buying it at at 15 times is overpaying. This this, uh, debate was almost Ackman Iconish. That that was almost that debate. I thought we were talking about the food company. I had nothing to add. All right. Uh, let's. We maybe need an online poll on Cisco then. All right. Let's round things out with TripAdvisor. The stock popping on results. Seema Modi has the details there. Seema. Hey, Brian, TripAdvisor's cost-cutting measures are starting to pay off. Earnings came in better than expected, led by experiences in dining, which saw double-digit sales growth, up about 16% in the fourth quarter. Now the question is, can TripAdvisor grow its total revenue, which in the last three months of the year fell 3% year-over-year, led by hotels and its media division? One of the reasons, that is one of the reasons the stock has underperformed its peers. It's down about 40% in the past 12 months. Key question on tomorrow's earnings call, how does it increase its market share in tours and restaurants at a time when consumers are increasingly going to social media to get recommendations, the coronavirus hitting tourism, and what steps is it taking to fend off competition from Google? Guys, CEO Stephen Coffer has been one of the biggest critics of Google and its search practices, so we'll also see what Coffer has to say about that company. Plus, staffing, three weeks ago I reported that TripAdvisor cut 5% of its workforce. Right now, you're seeing the stock pop uh, by as much much as 8% here in extended trade. The stock did trade at an eight-year low just about two weeks ago, just to put this move into perspective. Brian, back to you. All right, CB, uh, thank you very much. I mean, obviously, a little bit of this move after hours probably is going to be short-covering guys. I mean, this is a stock that's 
wiped out half its value in the last year. The CEO has been critical of Google, basically saying that Google is sort of this thing that's eating the entire industry. But you've got a company that I, I don't know, Guy Dom, if people care where they go for their advice. You Google, you know, you put something into a search engine, it spits up. Right. Advisors fighting a pretty big competitor somewhat, in Alphabet. Somewhat commoditized. I mean, to your point, this is a nine. Not that it matters, but it was a ninety-dollar stock four years ago as well. The only thing I think you have going forward is two things. You mentioned the short interest. I think it's close to thirteen percent. Maybe people cover on the back of that, and the fact that twenty-nine and a half ish was a low we put in back in the summer of 2017. So maybe you have something to trade against. But short of that, there's no real compelling reason to be here. I mean, I think the risk-reward sets up decently on the long side, but this is not a name that you necessarily have to be in for any compelling reason. Well, I think the bar was low here, right? I mean, expectations were low. So, I mean, I, the, the macro issue is a very significant one. I wonder sort of in the short term, the micro issue. This is a decent report, right? So revenue is a beat. That's good. It wasn't giant, but the outlook was decent. So I don't know. Maybe with expectations so low, the valuation isn't high, Clearly, there's a major headwind, but I don't know. might be worth just for a trade. If you like this space, I mean, I would just look at Expedia. Obviously, it hasn't had a great year, but this is uh, you know, expected to have mid to high single digits, uh, EPS growth and sales growth and trading at 18 times. And obviously, I just think it's much, a much more defensible model, let's say, than the TripAdvisor. Um, so I just don't, I don't kind of see anything I, in TripAdvisor. It's, it's a tough place to invest. We all know the headwinds. Um, and to me, Bookings is the only one to own. I mean, they actually have a, a much more constructive free cash flow. They're kind of at a 7 or 8% free cash flow yield. It's a stock that's certainly performed better. It's a more defendable valuation. It's about 18 times. Uh, I think Bookings is the one. Okay. On deck. Stocks overall are surging, but so are valuations. We've got one stat for you that might make you rethink this monster rally. Plus, Roku's Wild Ride, the once unstoppable stock now stuck in a rut since last earnings. What options traders believe are going to happen with Roku when it reports again tomorrow. And a reminder, you can catch CNBC anytime. Listen to us live on the go from anywhere on the CNBC app, but you've got to download it to be able to do that. So download it now. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Very appropriate animation. Welcome back, everybody. The market's surging today. The Dow up 275. The NASDAQ 100 up exactly 1% today. By the way, the NASDAQ 100, Guy Dami, is yes, now up 10% this year. So my math says it's on pace for 100% gain this year. Bitcoin's up. The U.S. dollar is up. Green lights all around. Or is, is any way, there's no way. That, I mean, is there this pace? Well, I mean, look. And, come on. In a vacuum, no. But I've been saying this for a while. So, I mean, it keeps going up clearly right in my face, number one. Number two, when you have Jerome Powell making comments like, you know, we'll do whatever, I'm paraphrasing, we'll do whatever we need to do to stave off or fight off a recession, I mean, that's going to give ammunition, it's going to add gasoline on this fire. But again, 
despite the fact we had that brief sell-off, there are 18 to 20 different metrics or valuations that are absolutely flashing red. Now, you can choose to ignore them, by the way, correctly over the last couple months, or you could say, you know what, maybe this thing has gotten to the level of absurdity. The market seems to go up basically a percent every day, and the sell-offs are just completely gobbled up by this passive investing, which is by the, in and of itself a very dangerous thing, my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about mega cap tech. We've, we went through the MAGA last night, which Dan has, has pointed out for a long time. The, 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 the weightings of, of Amazon, Apple, uh, and Microsoft are 33% of the NASDAQ 100. I mean, you say no more, um, throw Google in, and, and you're up to about 35 per, 38%. So um, that's your story right there. And, and I do think that the, the QE4 that's been quietly thrown at us is, is the reason, because this is money flowing into the stock market, and these are the stocks that, that, that are getting it. I just, I'm, I'm long. I'm always long. So that wasn't like a good call. It's just that's what I always do. But I'm nervous. I don't understand the whole premise here in that, the, you know, the Fed has your back. And so we don't want good economic data because the Fed will then no longer have your back. So we're much better off with weak or middling economic data. That doesn't make sense to me for long-term value. Welcome to the last decade. I, I mean, well, I think earnings improved dramatically. But right, the rate of earnings is now increasing much more slowly. But ratio, I mean, the the PE is much higher. Rates are lower. But, so it's but, a very good point. But just but but buybacks but then, and the ability of companies to 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 buy back their shares and basically use balance sheet uh, mechanics, which I think are a big part of this. They've certainly been a big part of, of a backstop for equities during difficult yeah. times. Um, but the, the stock market earnings gonna, have gotten better. I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here. And oh, I like that. Here we go. The stock market. Never happened. When, I, when I started in this building. 1998, there were about 7,500 stocks. Now there's about 3,300 stocks. Buybacks have taken more shares out of the market. We've got 85 to 88 million millennials who've been raised to believe you throw a little money in your 401k plan every month, and you don't change. Low-cost indexing, right? Is there a case to be made that the market just keeps going up? Valuations don't matter at all. Simply because it's there's a lot more time. people and a lot more money chasing a lot smaller pool of assets. That's the hope, right? I mean, it's different this I'm time. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. Well, well, I mean, but the savings rate calls. is up and interest rates are lower. Listen, I, you know, I watch the network all day long and I hear the Thank laziest you. arguments about why it's different I this time. time. No, I, I just, I, I really do. I just, I, you know, I heard today three times why people can't find a single reason why you want to sell a single MAGA stock and they'll give you eight different reasons why they're defensive and why the money's coming in, whether it's passive or this or that or whatever. I'll just tell you this. Even in last year, when the S&P 500 goes up 29% of the year at the tippy top, all time high. There was a 7.5% sell-off, there was a 6.5% sell-off, and there was a 5.5% sell-off. If you think that that 3.5% sell-off that we had on this coronavirus was it in the end of January, you got another thing coming, and the more parabolic this stuff... What's that? Judas Priest. Okay. (laughs) And the more that things go parabolic is the worse it's going to be when it happens. And you were talking about earnings growth. Well, we're going to get December of 18 if everybody hits the sell button at the same time, right? Where The reverse effect of everything on the upside then happens. You flip the switch the other way. All I'm saying, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, Guy Dami. What I'm saying is, if you got, and I'm not calling the market a Pontiac Aztec, and no disrespect to Pontiac Aztec owners, if five people need a car, and the only available car is the Aztec, they might bid the price at Aztec above where it should be in the free market, because you got five people bidding on one car. And I just wonder if the amount of money coming into the market is is over. It's okay. All three owners are going to get mad at me. 
Everybody's bidding on a shrinking pool of assets. Right. That's my only point. Scarcity value. I mean, again, yeah, it's a fair point. And obviously, that's been that's been the way to look at this now for quite some time. I don't think in my world it can't be just that easy. And to Karen's point, you know, this hope that the Federal Reserve somehow has our back, not only us, but central banks around the world, is absolute folly. And to what you said, passive investing is great on the upside, but when that turns, and it will turn, it ain't going to be so pretty on the downside. You say it will turn. We saw a little preview, a little taste of it in December of 18. Everybody blamed it on the Fed. Okay, a quarter-point rate hike is really going to shift the market down 18% at one point to its lows. Why are you so confident it will turn? Why am I so confident it will that turn? That it will turn. I mean, when I, so I'm 56 years old now. When I was a young person... You don't look was, it. Thank you. Appreciate that. I look older. There was a commercial, It's Not Nice to Fool with Mother Nature. Do you remember that? I think it was no. from Margarine. I'm sure you do. The point is, that's exactly what central banks are doing. They're fooling with something they shouldn't be doing. They're trying to take, extract a portion of the cycle out. That's great as long as you can do it until you can't. And that happened, go back and look in 08, 09, and it's destined to well, happen again. It could go, just go back to Japan. Look at the Nikkei. Everyone pull up the Nikkei chart. It went parabolic in the late 80s, and, and then it got lost. 80% of its value, and now... So you who's know, selling? Well, what, 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 Remember they bought Rock <laughs> Who on the desk is selling now? Well, I, I guess my I mean, point is... What, what, this goes, back, yellow this Sony goes back to... Of course it did. This goes back to the interest rate thing and thinking that you can take out this part of the cycle, and I think Japan proved that that just doesn't happen, and so some of the demographics that were going against the Japanese yeah. back then are going against us now, so, I mean... But you started, Brian. It's a, it's, it's a broader conversation. I just... I want... You start to wonder when you have a 10% gain in the NASDAQ 100 in, what, five weeks? All right. For more on what is driving the markets today, driving the Aztec, head over to the website at CNBC.com. But don't do it now, especially if you're driving. Do it later. In the meantime, here's what else we've got coming up on Fast. Oil prices doing something they haven't done in a long time today. Rising. Can crude keep its bid? Or will there be more pain ahead? And later, one of the top tech analysts on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs' Heather Bellini. She has some ideas on where to find opportunity in this red-hot sector. That's all coming up when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hi, welcome back to Fast Money. Be sure to tune in again tonight to our special report on the coronavirus outbreak and where the world stands right now. That is, again, 7 p.m. Eastern Time right here on CNBC. 
All right, now back to the market, specifically one that has really been impacted by the virus and China coming to a near standstill. That is oil. After dropping nearly every day this year, oil a little bit higher today. It's on hopes that demand will not fall as much as some of the worst estimates out there. So now let's focus on one group of companies that has been slammed on the slowdown. That is the shippers and the tanker stocks. All are down big this year, but they're trying to turn around a little bit this week. Are there any of this little talked about group worth your cash? Bring in Randy Givens. He is senior equity analyst at Jefferies. Randy, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Not not a market we talk about a lot. A lot of these are, you know, sort of billion and two billion dollar companies, a lot of debt out there. Last year we had you on because tanker rates spiked on all the Persian Gulf fears. Now we're seeing rates come down, I would imagine, because of a slowdown in shipping. And the stocks got whacked. They've come back a little bit this week. Are there any that you see that were oversold that are worth owning now? Absolutely, yeah. You had about a 60% run just in the fourth quarter on our average of kind of 10 tanker equities. Now, year to date, they're down 30%, right? So they've given a lot of that back. And the coronavirus is certainly causing flu-like symptoms for tanker owners and investors, obviously. Now, every year, you see the rate weakness in January and February. It's just normal seasonality. You have slowdown in demand. You have Chinese New Year. Now, that is exaggerated now with coronavirus. You have an extension of the Chinese New Year. You have refineries cutting runs, Sinopec, 600,000 barrels a day, all the independent teapot refineries in China, another million barrels a day. So when you have 2 million barrels of demand kind of offline for a time period, you don't need much imports, right? So that's why you're seeing tank rates. And they import 13.5 million barrels a day, yeah. roughly. Yep. Second biggest importer in the world. And, you, and, you, and by the way, Japan has also slowed down. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. They import 100%. Spreading all over. So, that's why oil. so why would China order ships of oil when they've already got too much? Correct. Yes, yeah, so you're seeing a little bit of inventory building, but the refineries aren't running, right? So that's why rates are down 70% year to date. Now, to put that in context, rates were 100,000 a day six weeks ago. Pretty good. Plus, even after this pullback right now, rates are about double where they were year last year, right? February of, of 2019. So we're still in a decent situation. Now, obviously, on the equity side, they've given back, like I said, 30% of the run-up in the fourth quarter. Now they're obviously on the oversold levels. Should they have gotten that high six weeks ago? Maybe not. Should they get this low? Absolutely not. You know, they're pricing in basically six to 12 months of, like, zero earnings. Now, is there going to be two, three, four months of reduced earnings? Absolutely. But you're still above you know, cash break even levels at these prices. So on that front, you're going to see a rebound. China's going to stimulate. Is it in May? Is it this summer? Is it by the fourth quarter? Who knows? But rates are still going to be okay. So the Baltic freight index, I mean, people point to that. It's been grim death now for better part of a year. Do the stocks reflect that or do the stocks still have time to catch up to what that is trying to tell us, I think? Sure, yeah, especially on the, the Baltic dry. You know, it's at all-time low valuations, all levels. The BCI, the Baltic Cape size, is negative, right? How is that even possible? Uh, so you're seeing a lot of impact, especially on the dry bulkers, iron ore, coal, grains, slowing into China if people aren't there and working in the mills or shutting down all these things. So on the Baltic side, you're certainly seeing that impact, and that's going to be sustainable. There's some inventory drawing, so there needs to be some inventory building. There will be a rebound. But right, the stocks are certainly pricing in these levels for a sustainable period of time, and we don't think the rates stay here. Because at some point, you're going to get more slow steaming, reducing the effect of supply. You're going to get scrapping, vessels coming offline for that. So usually supply matches demand as demand falls. Demand can rebound very rapidly. Supply can't. It takes 18 to 24 months to build these vessels. Let me ask you about, you touched on scrapping. So with rates where they are 
and some of the, the ships having scrubbers and that differential in day rate must be meaningful, right? How do you think we'll really see a meaningful increase in scrapping to get that supply-demand dynamic back sure. in a better place? Yeah, great question. On the tanker side, probably not, because like I said, they're still above kind of cash break-even levels. On the dry dock, for sure, cape size rates at 4000 a day are below break-even, right? So over the last 6 to 12 months, the big debate was been either to scrub or not to scrub, right? And now they're clearly saying, hey, installing scrubbers was the right move. You're earning fifteen to 20000 a day more for a VLCC with a scrubber. You're earning eight to 10000 a day more for a cape size with a scrubber. For, so for those owners with scrubbers, some we mentioned earlier on the dry bulk side, Starbulk, Janko, Eagle, and then on the tanker side, DHT, International Seaways, Scorpio Tankers, they're certainly outperforming the market, and it goes from below OPEX to above cash break even with that scrubber. We got half our audience right now that's sitting in their car going, what What's the heck is a scrubber? Scrubber. scrubber. What's a scrubber? It's basically okay. with IMO 2020, a new fuel Which is the International Maritime Organization. They change the composite of the fuel they need to use. Correct. You need to use cleaner fuel. So you can either not install a scrubber and just go buy higher priced, higher quality fuel, or you can install a scrubber, basically a small scale refinery you put on the ship. Right? And then you can still buy the lower quality, lower cost fuel, scrub it on board your ship, and then now you have compliant fuel. So there's two ways to comply. Uh, Randy, the shipping guy, by the way, has an anchor on his tie. A lot of anchors. Very <laughs> it's official. Cool. Yeah. Um, so what we're talking about in terms of supply-demand dynamics, though, if you think about to 10 years ago when we had a commodity supercycle and you had this oversupply and this overreaction in terms of, of capacity that was built up in shipping, it was a disaster. It was a three- to five-year disaster, maybe sure. longer. Um, this sounds to me like a short-term interruption and something that's a huge opportunity, no? I- Absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. You know, when you had that run-up in 2004 to eight with the commodity supercycle, China joins the WTO, fleets supply was very small. Order books went to 80% of the fleet on the water. Now the order book to fleet ratio is maybe 8, 9%. So the outlook over the next, right, the next two or three months, coronavirus, not sure. The next two or three years, very attractive because you don't have that massive supply response. Taking capacity. Right. Capacity is low. Demand's going to inflect. And it's clearly going to offset any kind of minimal supply growth over the next couple of years. Randy, good stuff. By the way, you got buy ratings on Scorpio, Diamond S, Ardmore, Sacos, TK, and Euronav. Randy Gibbons of Jeffries, thank you very much. Much. Good My stuff pleasure. there. Can I just interject quickly? I know we have to yeah. go to commercial, but you know, Harvey Keitel is a big fan of this show, and he played a scrubber just for our audience in Pulp Fiction, if you recall. Do you recall that scene, Brian? Mr. Wolf. Yeah, Mr. Wolf. Yeah, well, look at you. Just, so, Harvey, if you're watching, come on the show one I think day. it was the wolf. Talk talking about your story. Right. Yeah, Sticking your with oil. A big under-the-radar story today. It's getting a lot of attention in the oil world. I know, Randy, you probably know about this. Shares of Whiting Petroleum crashing 22% really this afternoon. Deadwire reported that the oil driller has apparently hired advisors to explore options for a capital structure change, something to do with its debt. I have reached out to Whiting. If you're watching Whiting, get back to me, please. But I have not heard back yet. Whiting is a Denver-based company, heavily indebted. they got a net debt-to-EBITDA ratio of about three. What does that mean? That's higher than the average. Put that into context. Pioneer Natural Resources has net debt-to-EBITDA at 0.4. Whiting's at 3.0. So, I'm not picking on any names in particular, but some of the other names in the space that have high debt, high net debt-to-EBITDA ratios, and have been whacked by the equity markets, Matador, Oasis, Calon, Laredo, and there's others, by the way, there's others, all down double digits in 2020. So, you know, listen, th- this, this whiting news, for whatever you want to call it, whiting, people say, who cares? The reality of it is, is that this is a company that the stock fell 22% in a couple hours because they got a lot of debt. And according to people I talked to today, a lot of this debt, not just whitings, others, is being dumped, just sold at all costs. 
Well, there's $300 million in equity here. So this is a debt story. And, and, it, and it gets back to what's been going on also just especially in the mid and the upstream markets and what's not sustainable. But the good news for the sector is that these are the stories that I think are, are certainly, you know, should be headlines. But a lot of the companies that we've talked about, especially the, uh, the you know, the EOGs and the really the high, the, certainly the blue chip ones, name, the blue chip ones are ones that are run totally different from a CapEx and an OpEx perspective. And in fact, they are run for equity shareholders. I think for the first time in a, you know, they've been for the last couple of years. And they're starting to separate EOG, PXD yeah. and a few others. All right, up next, Goldman Sachs tech analyst Heather Bellini will join us with some answers about What's happening at Facebook? Uh, A big piece of news you got to hear. What? All right. Here's another look at today's mystery chart. How this company might have been the key to getting one of the biggest deals of the year done. And that chart is not any of the stocks involved in the deal. You know who it is? No. Smarty Pants? No. No. I'm going to give you the answer. Coming up. Stick around. All right, welcome back. There's a look at our Kramer cam, and love is in the air on Mad Money tonight. Jim's chatting with the Signet Jeweler CEO, of course, ahead of Valentine's Day. Everybody going out, panic buying their loved ones or people they hope are their loved ones. Be sure to catch the whole interview with Jim tonight. Signet Jewelers, by the way, it's been a hot stock coming up at the top of the hour. But coming up right here on Fast Money, Facebook, two more billion reasons to celebrate. We'll tell you about the major milestone the company just hit. We're going to break it down, what it means when all the other stuff, Microsoft, everything, Heather Bellini, Goldman Sachs' lead software analyst, is here on Fast Money, as always, live at the NASDAQ market site, and we're back after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook announcing a major milestone today. company now says that it has more than 2 billion active users on WhatsApp. Let's talk more about what messaging means for Facebook and other major trends in technology. Joining us now is Heather Bellini, Goldman Sachs' lead analyst for software and select Internet companies, coming to us live from the Goldman Sachs Internet and Technology Conference in San Francisco. Heather, thank you for joining us from your own conference. We do appreciate that. Uh, Two billion users on WhatsApp. Thanks for having me. That sounds great, except when I use WhatsApp, I don't see a lot of ads and I don't pay for it. Does it matter to Facebook? Well, WhatsApp certainly matters to Facebook because it's part of the whole Facebook collection of applications and it's part of the community and keeps keeps you integrated across all the different applications that they offer, whether that's Messenger, whether that's the Facebook Blue app or whether it's Instagram. So, yeah, I think it I think it does matter and it shows the utility of the platform that they've built. Hey, Heather, um, just switching gears a little bit to Microsoft. You've been an unabashed bull on this name for a very long time here. The stock is up 17% on the year after uh, a bang-up year last year. You have this multiple getting to kind of 15-year highs here. What do you tell investors here to hang on, right? And what what is the bull case near term from here? So it's not just a near-term bull case. I think it's a multi-year and a long-term bull case because if you look at the company, more and more of their revenue is moving to a ratable business model. It's moving to subscription. It's Office, moving to Office 365. It's their on-premise server products that are moving to Azure. It's Windows and offerings like Microsoft 365 that's getting people to pay on a subscription basis for things like Windows. And what that ultimately means is not just more predictability of their revenue stream, but it also means they're going to get lower churn rates over time, which equates to more gross profit. 
it. And so, I mean, honestly, I, I think they're becoming utility, and I mean that in a very positive sense, of enterprise computing. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, it's got a long road ahead of it. Heather, it's Karen. Let me just have you bounce back to Facebook for a second. Um, when you ha- I think you have a $250 target. How do you get there? Is it, is it uh, earnings expansion? Is it a multiple change, both? How do you get to that valuation? So we look at it a, a couple of different ways. So we look at it on a discounted cash flow basis. We look at it on a, uh, on a cash flow basis. We also look at it on an earnings basis. And we look at the stock not just on calendar 20. So we actually look at it from a quarter five through quarter eight. And so, again, we're looking out more than 12 months. So it's actually a 24-month view of the stock. And we think you, you don't need a lot in terms of multiple expansion to get to where the company needs to be to be at our price target. It's more just consistent execution. I mean, there are factors in there, especially related to calendar 21, where we're looking at where you're going to have to make some assumptions on what they do with total expense growth, what happens to overall revenue growth. But we we think we're being conservative in those assumptions. And so we don't think it's a stretch at all as you as you look out over the next next year. Hey, Heather, Tim Seymour, thanks again for joining us. So back to Facebook or still with Facebook. Uh, we talk a lot about the regulatory headwinds, and every once in a while there's talk of do you break up Facebook. Um, what do you think about that as a catalyst for the stock? Is that outlandish or is that actually uh, bullish some of the parts, and how do you look at that? So, I mean, I'm not an antitrust expert, so first and foremost I should, I should make sure everyone is, is aware of that. But, you know, it, look, I think you've seen some interesting things happen. You saw some news yesterday um, out of the federal government where they're going to start looking at past acquisitions and start to subpoena records from past acquisitions that were under, say, $90 million in revenue. That's obviously the government looking to see if there was, not just for Facebook, for, but for all of the companies that got subpoenaed, whether there was some pernicious behavior, if you will, that went on during that process. Uh, and then you've got the question of whether or not this platform should be broken up. You could do with some of the parts on it. We don't go about valuing it that way. The, the question is, again, and this is just from us talking to antitrust experts, and we had Christine Varney uh, from Cravath yesterday speaking at the conference, and it's, it's not illegal to have a monopoly. It's illegal to do something, again, as in her words, pernicious uh, with that monopoly. And so that's the question is, if you go back, is there a basis for the government to be able to undo something that was created. And so, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. But first and foremost, I think the thing we've learned from from talking to experts in this field is this is not a 12-month cycle. This is probably something that's going to evolve over the course of the next five to seven years. And I think, again, we've been living with this in terms of its impact on the multiple for the last year or two. It's going to continue. How we feel about the stock is, is regardless of that, and it's really just based on is any of this impacting the fundamentals of the company? And as of now, we would say all signs point to it is not. Okay. Bullish on Facebook and on Microsoft. Heather Bellini, thank you very much. All right. Let's I trade a synonym for pernicious. It's funny. I was just looking up pernicious Insidious? squid. How about you know, do you remember that whole thing? Oh, I thought pernicious was a Greek scholar from uh, 1200 AD. Uh, Dan, there was some Sorry. interesting price action in Microsoft, by the way. A lot of volume the last couple of days. The stock's held up. You think it's held up? I mean, listen, this thing has gone parabolic. It's the, the, the largest market cap company in the world, that and Apple. It's not particularly natural, and it's going to come unwound a bit unnaturally. Maybe it does it from 200. They like big round numbers or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't really have much to add here. I don't know who's buying this stock. 
Well, maybe if Goldman Sachs is recommending the stock, from what I understand, they got a pretty good client list. So I, I suspect they might be making some calls or Bloomberg messages. All right, coming up, we're going to finally reveal our mystery chart. But before we do, we're going to offer you up one last clue because Tim says I still don't know what it is. I have no idea. No idea, Brian. The chairman started this company out of the back of a truck in the 1980s. Like I said, we're going to dish up all the gossip on this company coming up when Fast Money returns. Stick around. All right, it is now that your favorite time of the show. No, not the end. The time to reveal your mystery chart. This stock has been on track for this best week in more than a year. We said we're going to dish on the goss. If you guessed Dish Network, which nobody on the desk did, you'd be right. Shares the television provider trading at its highest levels since September. Stock getting a big boost after a federal judge approved T-Mobile's $26 billion deal for Sprint. The ruling sets the stage for Dish to enter the wireless Wars. Anybody around the table stepping up to the plate? I, on a breakout above 42. That's where it stopped in July. That's where it broke down from. It's had a big run. I'd rather wait, see what it does here, and wait for the pullback than to try to than to buy it on a breakout. I'd rather buy it on a breakout above 42. Okay. From the wireless wars to the mega media mover, Roku up 10% over the past week. The company reports after the bell tomorrow. And options traders are betting the stock will stream even higher on its results. My co out in San Francisco with the options action. Yeah, Roku is an extraordinary one, really. We saw about two times the uh, calls outpacing puts today. Right now, the options market is implying a move higher or lower of about $20 in this stock. That's considerable considering its $138 closing price. But actually, if you take a look at its historical earnings moves, you begin to understand why it might be implying such a big move. It's averaged a 20% move over the last eight quarters when they've reported. Where we saw some of this activity was purchases of the 150 weekly calls. They were spending just under $6 to buy those, and that's a bet that it could rise above that strike price by at least the premium that they spent. And if you take a look at how the way the stock has behaved over the course of the last 18 months, you can begin to understand why options might be the way to play it. This thing has had an absolutely wild move, higher and lower, over the last 18 months. All right, Mike Coe, thank you very much. For more options action, as always, turn in the full show on Fridays. 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, your final trades are next. We have a big show, literally, coming your way tomorrow night. Scott Miner to Guggenheim will be with us the entire hour. Big time guest trader. Tune in. Final trades, Tim Seymour. Sight tap Scott on the desk. That's great. Uh, Cisco, we talked about it. I think this is, if anything, weakness to buy. I'm with Heather. Facebook. I think Lyft's got a little overdone there. Twitter. Brian Sullivan. All right. Guys, thank you very much. Tune in tomorrow night. Scott Miner with us a whole hour. We'll see you then. Mad with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. 
We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.